0: The issue with perfectionism is, number one, you don't forgive yourself if you don't do it perfectly. They'll just continue to beat themselves up. Our self-talk, our internal dialogue is so toxic. Most of us would never allow another person to talk to us the way we talk to ourselves. As long as you're moving in the right direction, even if you fall, it's okay, because it's in those falls that we learn the most. No one really knows why people are as resilient as they are, whether you're born with it, whether you develop it, but it's very different and it's individual, and I don't think you should be hard on yourself wherever you're at.
1: Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics life. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back
2: to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, this episode was truly very special to me. It's unique because it kind of branches out of the typical biohacking type topics that I have on this show and goes more into our personal stories, our trauma, our mindset. I was so excited when the Amons reached out to me about bringing Tana on for her new book. And it was truly a beautiful memoir, inspiring, really made me think so much about my own personal life and my own personal experiences. And I think you guys will be really, really encouraged by this episode. There will be a full transcript of this episode in the show notes. That will be at melanieavalon.com slash Tana Amen. That's T-A-N-A-A-M-E-N. I'm also super excited because we are going to do a signed book giveaway on my Instagram. So just check out my Instagram for that. And then there will be another giveaway as per usual in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Just comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love, which by the way, ends up usually being really amazing beauty counter products. Speaking of, I am so thrilled to announce that I formed an entire new Facebook group just for clean beauty and safe skincare. It's called clean beauty and safe skincare with Melanie Avalon. Please join me there. I wasn't sure how it was going to go. I kind of started it on a whim, but oh my goodness, it's becoming such an amazing community. You guys are sharing your skincare experiences, your product experiences, what works for you, what's making your skin truly glow. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Tana Amen. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly honored about the conversation that I am about to have a little backstory. So a few months ago, I had on a fabulous guest. I had Dr. Daniel Amen on the show, and he is a 12 times New York Times bestseller, a celebrity psychiatrist, and he specializes in brain scans, spec scans for brain health. And I actually got a brain spec scan, which I talked about on that episode, and we dive deep into the physical aspects of mental health and what's going on there. But his wife, Tana Amen, is also a New York Times bestseller, and she is releasing a new book. Called The Relentless Courage of a Sacred Child. And her team reached out to me about Tana coming on the show for this book. And I was so incredibly honored and so excited because this is actually the first time bringing on a guest with this type of content because normally it's nonfiction, diet, health, and I'm sure we'll dive into that as well. But Tana's book is a memoir and it was absolutely so powerful. It dives deep into childhood trauma, identity, all of the the things that we experience as human beings and how that really affects really our perspective of ourselves and what we do in our lives. So Tana, thank you so much for being here. Oh, I'm so excited. Thank you so much, Melanie. So for listeners who are not familiar with you, which I'm sure many of them are, but like I said, Tana is a New York Times bestselling author. She is vice president of the Amon Clinics. She's a neurosurgical ICU trauma nurse, and she's a world renowned health and fitness expert. Her New York Times bestselling book is the Omni Diet, which I would love to dive in a little bit at the end if we have time. But to start things off. So the first question that I normally ask is tell me a little bit about your story and what brought you here, but that really is the the topic of today's show. So instead I will ask Tana, because your background is, you know, this is the first time I'm assumed that you're releasing a memoir. What motivated you or inspired you to write this book? Like what was the need that you felt there?
0: You know, for so many years, I actually did the opposite. I had a wall up. I had a facade that, you know, that's how I describe it. I felt like if I had enough makeup on, had the right clothes, if I accomplished enough, if I could, you know, get good enough grades, make enough money, people wouldn't see how broken I was inside. And so I really hid that, all that brokenness I felt, all that frustration, how inferior I felt for so many years. And it wasn't until after I met my husband and really did a lot of work. And I let me clarify, I was not a patient. <laughs> that is not how we met. But he just he's such an incredible human. You know, he would tell you I tortured him, but the truth is I wasn't ready to get involved after going through what I had gone through and I went through a really awful divorce, but he created this safe space for me to sort of heal. And so after that, I started having women. I really never talked much about my past, but I would divulge little bits and pieces when I was doing the Omni diet and some of my health and wellness training and coaching. And as I did just these small tidbits, I had women start to tell me if you can do it, I can do it. And I had this woman at an event come up and tell me she started crying and she was like from Nigeria. And she says, I pray every day that God will do for my life what he's done for yours. And if you can do it, I can do it. And I thought to myself, you know, I haven't even really told anybody the worst of it. And I've had people say to me, what would you know about my life? Your life looks perfect. So I kind of felt like I needed to really drop the rest of it and and be honest. But I also needed to wait till my daughter was at an age where I could really tell her the truth and be honest and have her understand. So I didn't want to just, you know, drop this bomb while my daughter was growing up and have her sort of sort out the, the debris, if you will.
2: And now she's old enough listeners definitely get the book because reading it, you went through a lot and you just touched on it right now that it can be I think really unexpected for a lot of people, especially women, because looking at you, you look like you have, you know, the picture perfect life and you open the book by telling how you talked at a rehab facility and, you know, you weren't really accepted. Like people were very skeptical. Like, what do you know? Because nobody had any idea of what you had gone through. So that's a question to start off with, because I think people experience different levels of trauma, growing up, identity issues, whatever they may go through. I mean, you went through a lot, sexual abuse, like murder, drugs. I mean, the whole, the whole gauntlet. So do you have to have experienced a certain amount of trauma to be broken? Or can some people experience seemingly no trauma and still feel broken? Like, what do you see in the spectrum of experiences of trauma and how it affects people in their day-to-day lives later? That's a really good question.
0: So I actually, it's very different for everybody. It's so funny when when you say I've been through so much and so many people I know who have been through a lot, even more than I have been through, they'll minimize it because that's what they had to do to survive. And that's what I did. It's like, well, it wasn't as bad as some people have had it. I knew it was wrong. I knew it was bad. But the way I survived was by saying, you know, I'm tough. I can get through this. Other people have had it worse. And so some people are able to do that. Other people can't. And they they will crumble, and that's not an insult. It's just a fact. Some people can deal with more than other people can, and and the fact is is some people have had it worse than I have, and some people dealt with it better than I did. And there are other people who didn't have as much, and maybe they struggled more. And there's no judgment there. It's just where you're at in life, and it's how you deal with it. Resilience is an interesting thing. No one really knows why people are as resilient as they are. Whether you're born with it, whether you develop it, but it's very different and it's individual. And I don't think you should be hard on yourself wherever you're at.
2: I absolutely love that. That's actually something I personally have struggled with so much is I have my own personal demons or things that I've experienced as quote trauma in my head, but I compare myself to others and I think, well, you know, it's not this bad. Like it's not as bad as what other people might be experiencing. So I don't know. I really struggle with how to experience it like should i should i see these things as trauma like what do you think about the victim versus the resilience warrior mentality what do you think is the healthiest approach to that so i think it
0: could be a fine line and you touched on something really important so when you start to compare yourself to others cuz i did that in my 20s when i went through a wicked depression after i was diagnosed with cancer i went through this wicked depression kept wishing i would die and i I was struggling there was it was compounded there were so many factors going on so many thoughts in my head but one of those things that I was struggling with is I felt guilty that I didn't have it as bad as other people I felt guilty for not being more grateful that I, that I couldn't pull myself out. I felt guilty that it's like, well, my cancer is not as bad as other people have it. I wasn't sexually assaulted and abused as, as much as some girls have been. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't sold into, you know, sex trafficking. I wasn't chained to a radiator when I was, I mean, I would come up with the stupidest things. And I would tell myself that I should be more grateful. And because I did that, so there's a, there's a fine line between resilience that yes, that's, you know, there's a certain amount of resilience that comes from saying, it could have been worse. But if you take it too far, you, you start to lay on guilt. And so when, you, when that guilt starts to impact you, you paralyze yourself. You're not able to move forward.
2: And that's not a good thing. And that's what happened to me. This is resonating with me so much. What do you think is the purpose of guilt? Like I'm, I assume that it serves a purpose. Is it a protecting feeling? Or why do you think we experience guilt about that? You know,
0: when it serves the purpose of keeping you, you know, keeping you on track, keeping you from doing things that you know are going to get you into trouble. So, so we often will reframe it into, if I, if I do this, then what? Is my behavior getting me what I want? So if you know that, you know, if, if you've got a certain amount of guilt that keeps you focused on your values, that's a good thing. But if after you've done something, you can't forgive yourself and guilt is paralyzing you and preventing you from moving forward and forgiving yourself, that's toxic.
2: So when, did you have a moment when you were able to like have this epiphany and release the guilt? I mean, you talk about a lot of things you did, EMDR, the work with Byron's work. Was there one thing that was the trigger for you or was it a long journey? You know, I'd say that it was a process. If you're reading my book,
0: the first half of the book, it's pretty clear that it was a struggle. I mean, it's just mostly struggle. There's a lot of childhood trauma. There's trauma in my adolescence. Then in my twenties, I'm diagnosed with cancer, go on the wrong medication, which almost ruins my life. And then I have a lot of bad decisions that occur because of that, because I'm on the wrong medication and I'm wildly impulsive. I make a lot of bad decisions, which creates some self-induced trauma, if you will. <laughs> so I mean, let's just be honest. And so because of that, I didn't my spiritual walk was really tainted. I didn't have, I didn't have anything to grab onto. I didn't have a lot of hope in my life but the second half of the book is where the journey starts for healing and so there's there's my spiritual walk there's the biology I, I get physically healthy there's the psychology where I start to get mentally healthy. there's the social where I start to get new friends and I start to develop a whole you know I get into college and start to to change the people I'm hanging out with and there's the spiritual walk and all of those things begin to change and so there's a lot of change that happens fast but the journey to healing, I wouldn't say happened overnight. It was a process and it's not a straight line. So I think people start to feel, again, guilty or they feel bad if they try something and it doesn't work instantly. We are this like quick fix society. But the truth is, as long as you're moving up, right, as long as you're moving in the right direction, even if you fall, it's okay because it's in those downtimes, it's in those falls that we learn the most. So as long as it's a jagged line upward, it's okay. And I practice martial arts. I actually have a second degree black belt in Kenpo. And one of the things that helped me so much was this metaphor, because women, especially if you've grown up like I did in trauma and you're trying to control, you you struggle so much for control. And so when you get to that point of trying to like find control in your life, you become this perfectionist, which can become so toxic. And I remember walking into my dojo one day and I just wanted to learn how to hit stuff really hard because of some of the stuff I had been through with sexual trauma. I'm like, I just wanted something empowering where I could hit stuff really hard and protect myself. And my master said, you know, I really want you to avoid bites. You really don't want to go blow for blow with a 250 pound guy. That's not really the goal. And he said, but so we're going to learn how to fall safely and get up quickly and get away. And I was like, I don't want to learn how to fall. I want to learn how not to fall. And he was like, no, you have to learn how to fall because it's, it's part of the journey. It's part of martial arts. It's part of protecting yourself is being able to fall safely and get up quickly. You only fail if you stay down. And it was just, it was one of those light switch moments where I'm like, why didn't someone teach me that when I was a kid? You know, metaphorically speaking, what if we all learned that falling is not failing?
2: I love that. That's actually something I really struggle with, the the perfectionist tendencies. And I remember one time when I was talking with one of my therapists and, or I don't, I think it was some of the work that she was giving me. And there was like a list of all these different traits that you could have, which were mindsets that were not, you know, supportive or ideal. And it was things like being a victim or worrying, but one of them was perfectionism. And I was like, why is perfectionism a bad thing? I was like, isn't that a good thing? Like, I feel like I kind of take pride in it or it keeps me productive or it gets things done. So what is the issue with perfectionism? So
0: the issue with perfectionism is number one, you don't forgive yourself if you don't do it perfectly. So, so many women won't even try because if it doesn't go perfectly, or if they don't think they can do it perfectly, they'll pick up their toys and go home and not try. It becomes an excuse not to try. And then if they do try and it doesn't work out perfectly, they'll just continue to beat themselves up. Our self-talk, our internal dialogue is so toxic most of us would never allow another person to talk to us the way we talk to ourselves because it's abusive and that's what perfectionism does it's like if we can't do it perfectly we just beat ourselves up
2: and i think it's particularly a pretty big issue especially with people in my audience who are in the whole biohacking sphere because we can have a perfectionist tendency or drive to try to perfect all of the things especially with health that we're experiencing diet, fitness, there can be this huge drive to be perfect. And I read the Omni diet as well. And that was one thing you talked about was like your 90, 10 rule. And also putting yourself on a scale of one to 10, your perfectionist tendencies and where you should be for that. So yeah. Do you see that a lot with people when it comes to like diet, fitness, nutrition? Oh, for sure. So I hate the word diet. The first
0: three letters in the word diet are die. So yeah, I don't like that word. So I remember, and I didn't like the title that my publisher picked, I wanted to call it the Omni Revolution, but diet sells. And so I lost that fight because they bought the book, right? So I really loved the content in that book, but the word diet wasn't my choice. And so because I wanted people, and this is one thing I always said when I was teaching my classes, I will not help you lose weight. I will help you get healthy because weight loss is the stunning side effect of vibrant health. So I would never focus on someone's weight. I just refuse to because it's it's way too toxic. I'm not going to help you get into a bikini for some special event, but I will help you get healthy. Because if you get healthy and you reduce your inflammation and you are eating whole foods and you're, you know, you're doing the things that are right for your body, the rest of it's going to happen.
2: Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th Annual Biohacking Conference Farm Direct Beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. Epic presence for people. This can just become your go to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash danger coffee with the coupon code danger coffee. i want to go back to your original book, but while we're talking about the diet, first of all, the Omni Revolution. There's always this debate in like the carnivore and the keto people, and then there's the, you know, the raw vegan, and it's always this dietary war. And my initial thought is, I think if we just look at the human body, we are omnivores. I mean, that's pretty much what I see. And so I loved in your book that you talked about the debate or the, the war between plant versus protein and really bringing some absolution there. So just really quickly, could you tell listeners that the tenet of the Omni diet and the, the plant versus protein debate?
0: So let me start off by saying people will fight more about food than they do about politics. Maybe not now, <laughs> but to, but historically, they fought more about food than politics or religion. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen. Why they even think they should tell someone else how they need to eat is bizarre to me. But for me, it's always been about health. So I don't have a dog in the fight. I do not do not have a dog in the fight, whether or not you want to eat plant or protein. I just don't. At our So whatever my personal belief system is... I also tend to believe that we are omnivores. I do believe we don't eat enough plant-based foods in general as a society simply because processed foods have taken over. So I believe we need to cut the processed foods out of our diets because they're not real food. They're chemically created Franken foods. So if we just cut that out and we ate more whole food right there, I think we've you know eliminated most of the battle. But when it comes to plant versus protein, my thought is for some people, they do it for health. And that's really where my focus is at. And in our clinics, we will test your blood. It's really about your individual type, what works best for you. And if it's more about ethical reasons or religious reasons, then that's fine. I am not going to argue with you about that. All I want to know, again, I'm going to test you. We want to see what's going on with your body. What do you need? What is missing? And let's supplement. Let's make sure you're getting what you need. If you've got inflammation, let's make sure we're addressing it. If you're not getting the right nutrients, let's make sure we're addressing it. Let's cut out. The one thing I think both sides agree on is processed foods. So that's really my belief on that.
2: What do you test in the blood specifically?
0: So we want to know, I mean, all of your basics. We want to know a basic chemistry. We want to know vitamin D, your fatty acid levels, and then for some people, because we're a psychiatric clinic, obviously, we're going to go deeper. We want to know, we do a, a much bigger assessment. We want to know what's going on with your thyroid. If you're, if you're depressed or you're anxious, what's happening with your thyroid, your hormones, like there's all sorts of stuff we need to know. But as far as nutrients, we want to know what those basic nutrient levels are. What's vitamin B, vitamin D, what are all those things doing? And one of the big ones, the, the two big ones actually, are vitamin D and your fatty acid levels. So those are the two that are typically not right in almost every person that walks through our door. And you absolutely will have problems with your mood if those are off. You're more likely to become diabetic, have heart disease, have cancer, like all sorts of problems. If we can get those two things right, you're much better off. But also your gut. We want your gut healthy. If you've been taking antibiotics or certain medications or having way too much stress in your life or taking NSAIDs like Advil, you're likely to have problems with your gut. Or if you've been eating just a really lousy diet and you've got food allergies, you're likely to have problems with your gut. And if your gut's not right, your brain is not going to be right, period, end of story.
2: Yeah, I was actually researching last night at length all the studies they've been doing on vitamin D and COVID. The relative risk and everything is just insane. Like those who have COVID are are much more likely to be vitamin D deficient. If you're vitamin D deficient, you're much more likely to be not asymptomatic. Yeah, it's huge.
0: So I've been surrounded, just to touch on that, I've been surrounded by people who have suddenly popped up with COVID. And it's just been freaking me out because I've, I'm right in the middle of this book launch for my new book. And I'm like, and plus there are people I care about and you're always worried, like, how are they going to, some people have very light symptoms, some people have really severe symptoms. And so I've been tested a number of times and shockingly, even though I've been exposed to it several times, I don't have it. But one of the things that I think it makes the difference is I've really worked on my immune system. I've really worked on keeping those, those numbers up. I take extra vitamin D, I take liposomal vitamin C, and I make sure I'm taking zinc. So those things have been shown that people are low in those things are more susceptible to COVID.
2: That was actually a question I had for you, because in the beginning of the book, you talk about how you often got sick a lot as a child. I was really sick. You had thyroid cancer, not just I'm saying just now here I am comparing trauma levels, but you know, not hypothyroidism or something like that. You had actual thyroid cancer, really intense things. Do you think there was, and do you think there is for a lot of people, an emotional component to health issues like that?
0: So I refused to acknowledge it or believe it, or even look at that when I, you know, when I was younger I just I didn't want to hear. I think that was a protective mechanism. And it was so funny when I met my husband and you know, we were getting to know each other and he'd ask me questions about my childhood. When you grow up in that environment, like you said, my first three memories were, you know, almost drowning when I was two, being left alone when I was two and a half and nobody, there were no adults around. And when I was four, everyone screaming in my house, my mother and my grandmother on the floor because my uncle had been murdered and a drug deal gone wrong. So those are my first few memories. And when you have that happen everything in your life becomes, you know, your first few years are supposed to be about safety and security so you can explore the world. But that doesn't didn't happen because I was always looking for the tiger around the corner. When your early memories are almost all about survival, you begin to hide. At least I did. I I would hide because it was safer or try to be invisible. So forget exploring the world. I was just trying to like make sure I, you know, stayed out of trouble and stayed out of the way. And then all of a sudden, two weeks after my uncle was murdered, I was in the hospital for upper and lower GIs, gastrointestinal studies. I was having severe abdominal issues, gastrointestinal issues. And then I was sick all the time, always on antibiotics. I've had 10 medical surgeries, had thyroid cancer that metastasized. If anybody could get something, I got it. So it was just crazy. So I didn't really connect that and I, or maybe I just refused to. And I remember when I was talking to my husband about my my life and whatever. And I was telling him about being in the hospital you know, at four years old and going through that. And he looked at me and he goes, wow, that was two weeks after your uncle was murdered. And I'm like, oh, don't give me psychobabble. And he's like, really? You don't think those are connected? But as I got to know him and I really started to, to do my own work and I started to ad- maybe acknowledge and admit some of the things with that scared child when I was growing up, I dropped that defense mechanism and I started to really pay attention and I could almost see growing up like right after I developed a panic attack at 9 my tonsils had to come out you know right after I got mono and then I had to have my tonsils out actually so I almost always got sick right after some major event that happened that was negative
2: I think there is a huge connection there and I actually recently interviewed Wim Hof and he talks a lot in his book about you know generational stress stored in cells and I've interviewed David Sinclair about stress, and I I just really feel like there is something there. And it's funny because something like IBS, people will often write off in a way as being psychosomatic. And that's the reason. And like, it's not real or in a way because of that. But I I think now I'm like, it actually is, (laughs) maybe it is psychosomatic partly, but that doesn't make it any less a factor or any less real or any less of a connection.
0: Yeah. And I don't know that I love the word psychosomatic only because yes, that is a real term. But when we say psychosomatic, we tend to, society tends to write off people's issues as being quote unquote in their head. Well, guess what? It is in your head, but that not in a bad way. <laughs> so it's like, it doesn't make it bad. So it's like, it is in your head, but it doesn't make it bad. So we need to be more conscious of the fact that our subconscious and our brains are so
2: powerful and they're trying to tell you something. Also to that point, because you also talked about in the book, how you would have these issues and in that spirit, doctors would say, oh, well, you know, maybe go on antidepressants or, and you, you had your whole experience with Prozac, which was quite a story. Uh, listeners, you will have to read the book for the craziness with all of that. But what are your thoughts on medications like that? Do they have a place? What do you think is a healthy approach? Well, I'm a nurse.
0: I'm a neurosurgical ICU nurse. So of course, medications save lives every day. So I am not anti-medication whatsoever. I'm I'm against the indiscriminate use of it without actually knowing what effect those medications are going to have and without actually trying to give people skills. Pills over skills is not what I consider to be good medicine. That's not what my husband considers to be good medicine. But do medications have a place? Absolutely. Absolutely. But like you just said, I was put on the wrong medication without anyone really knowing anything about how that would affect me. And I became—I went from being so anxious that I developed an eating disorder because I needed control over my life to being dangerously impulsive and making a over an eight-month period almost ruining my life with bad decisions. And I mean, to the point that I, on a dare, went to Costa Rica with nothing, got left there with no passport. I mean, it was just insane, the stuff I was doing. So, you know, and I write about that in my book, but it's just, you know, I know that there are a lot of people who are listening who feel shame over those things. I, for so many years, felt shame over, like, wow, what was that? Like, what was going on? And I kind of knew it was the medication, but you can't really explain it to anybody because no one's going to understand. And I remember when I met my husband and he did a brain scan on me and it showed that my frontal lobes were sleepy. And he said to me, he said, so you went through this period of like really bad depression and you saw a psychiatrist. He's like, I hope he didn't put you on Prozac. And I'm like, well, actually he did. He's like, well, I figured that because during that time, that was sort of the drug of choice. He's like, but that's not the drug I would have put you on. Because you have... And I said, why? I was... Now I'm like perked up. I'm like, why is that? And he said, because you have sleepy frontal lobes. And that, that is an SSRI, which means it basically increases the availability of serotonin. And what serotonin does is it drops blood flow to your frontal lobes, which can make you more impulsive. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, ding, 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 ding. Like it just explained my whole life. And so I was it just suddenly validated how I felt. He's like, there are, there are medications, there are, there are actually antidepressants that would have been great for you to pull you out of that really severe depression because I wanted to die. So he's like, there are medications that would have been great, but that's not the one I would think that would work. And I was just like, wow.
2: For listeners, if they are, you know, working with psychiatrists and potentially trying different medications, I mean, is there a way that if they can know if the psychiatrist they're working with has a thorough understanding of all of this, like what type of questions would they ask? So it's been our battle and
0: just, you know, our pain point, you know, since my husband started, what he's doing is getting people to look at the brain. Because how do we know if you don't look? It's like people look at the heart. They look at if you have a broken bone. If you go to the gynecologist, they're going to look before they just do something. But when you go to a psychiatrist, they don't. They just put you on a drug. And if it doesn't work, they try a different one. And if it doesn't work, then you have a personality disorder, which is why psychiatry has such a bad rap. So when I first met my husband and found out he was a psychiatrist, I almost canceled my first date with him. Because of all of the experiences in my family and because of being a nurse and having to work with them in the hospital, I just didn't have respect for them. I mean it's sad to say, but it's just true and so when I found out what he did, I was fascinated. I'm like, wait, that's so interesting. like I don't know other psychiatrists that do this like why doesn't every psychiatrist do this? I sort of didn't understand i I still don't really understand the battle. I've been to the meetings with him. a lot of it is about money. I mean, I just it's bizarre to me so I hate when these arguments come up, come up about money and billing, but we would say that you need to look at the brain. I mean, that's been our fight all along. You need to look at what you're treating. Because in a scan, you can actually see if someone's brain is working too hard. You can see if it's too busy. You can see if it's slow, if it like has low blood flow, if it's got sleepy frontal lobes or sleepy parts of other parts of their brain, if they've had a head injury. And based on that, it gives you a target to go after. Now, we do a thorough assessment in addition to that. So we want to know exactly what's happened in your life and what's going on and why those things are that way. But that gives us a target to go after. And so we would say that you want to know what's going on in your brain. Obviously, there are people who are never going to be able to get a brain scan. So we've created like tools that are on our website to help people understand, based on on their lives and, and a series of questions, what might be going on in their brain. And probably my husband's best book for describing that is Change Your Brain, Change Your Life. He goes into detail. About, like, you know, if if this is going on with you, you most likely might have this. Of course, the scan is, you know, gonna be more accurate, but that at least helps people who can't come in for a scan.
2: Yeah, for listeners, I will put a link in the show notes to the interview I did with Daniel. It's at Melanieavalon.com/slash brain scan. But like I said, I got a brain scan done and he actually reviewed it in the episode, and it was so eye-opening the things that you can learn from it. And I, I just applaud you guys for, for fighting this battle because it seems to be such a casual... And I don't want to make a blanket statement about psychiatrists, but there is often, I feel like, a very casual approach to medication. And this is people's lives <laughs> that we're dealing with. And so just furthering more information and education about it, I think, is so, so key. So my mother's life was even harder than mine. She was a 16-year-old runaway, lived on the street,
0: never finished high school because her life at home was so awful. My grandmother was misdiagnosed this is why I had a hard time with psychiatry. She'd been misdiagnosed. We actually think she had a hormone imbalance, probably some other stuff going on, some PTSD and things like that. But she was misdiagnosed as being schizophrenic, put into a mental hospital and given electric shock therapy. I, I mean, just craziness. And as a nurse, many years later, I'm like, she's not schizophrenic. Like, like the, she had no symptoms of schizophrenia that I could see. Or, you know, even some of the professionals that I knew of. But for years, that's how she was treated. And it ruined not only her life, but the, the lives of all of her children and my grandfather. That's not fair. Was she having visions
2: or is that just your mom?
0: Yeah, that growing up with someone who sees things is really interesting. My mother is the one who has visions and she's, she hates when people call it being psychic But when you grow up with someone who in detail sees things, it's always really interesting. So that was another sort of interesting aspect of my childhood.
2: Yeah. So many things. So some big topics I'd love to touch on and ask you questions about the sexual abuse in your childhood and the role of sexuality. So much there. You did experience a lot of sexual abuse in your childhood, near rape experiences as well. Sexual abuse at the hands of family members, And you talk about the struggle in your mind that you had about how to identify yourself in that, like, were you a victim? Were you at fault? I think so many females, I'll start crying. I think so many females um, experience a lot of sexual trauma or abuse, and it can be very difficult to know. We try to feel like we are, we must be at fault. Oh, for sure. Can you talk a little bit about that? So the first
0: time something happened, I was 12, almost 12. My stepdad, my mom had gotten married really quickly to someone and he climbed in bed with me. Well, actually there was a series of things that led up to that. So the signs were already there, but I was so confused. I mean, how does, I didn't grow up with a dad. The only male figure in my house was my heroin addict uncle who was always high breaking in and out of the house. So I didn't really have a strong role model. My dad had abandoned me when I was you know, a baby. So I didn't really have this strong role model that so that I understood how men should behave in my life, if that makes sense. And so then this stepdad, who I really don't know, because they had just met, pops into my life and, and he starts, you know, really misbehaving. And then one day, and I was afraid to tell my mom, I was afraid to tell her because I'm like, she's finally happy. I knew she was struggling on her own. I thought, you know, this is her shot at not having to have such a hard life. And I, I had, was holding all that guilt over that. But I also knew something wasn't right. And then it ends up with him, you know, in bed with me one morning and he's got his hand up my shirt. And so, yeah, I was molested by my stepfather and without going into too much detail, I for the longest time felt like, did I do something like, or was it even wrong? Like there were so many questions. It's like, did I misread it? Did he really do that? Like you start to literally question your own thoughts and wonder if you're crazy. Fortunately, my mother did not question me she believed me. And so often part of the struggle is that women are not believed. Young girls are not believed for a number of reasons. Either they're not believed because it's not convenient for the adults in their lives. It's not convenient for their mothers to believe it because they don't want to be single. Or it's a family member and it's going to cause too much drama. Whatever that reason is, that does more damage than the actual event that happened in my mind. When a a woman is not believed, when a young, especially a child, forget woman, when a child is not believed, when they do come forward, it just invalidates everything that they just went through. And so they, they tried to do the right thing. They tried not to be a victim. And they just got slammed into that victim category by not being believed. And so now they're being called a liar. And so for me, that's way worse. My mom at least believed me. She actually tried to kill him. So it was very dramatic. Even that was traumatic going through that. But at least I felt validated. You know, unfortunately, she then followed up by sort of taking my voice away because, and I don't think she intended it, but it happens sometimes with our parents. They do something that they don't really intend to do. She took my voice away by telling me I had to be polite to him later. And I started to develop enough grit and gumption of my own. I realized that being that scared child that I was growing up and trying to hide wasn't working and i wasn't willing to have that happen again you know the same thing that happened with my stepfather and i and i developed a very caustic tongue but because my mother had done that i became angry so rather than using my voice in a balanced way i really started to use it in a toxic way but then there was more you know i was date raped that was even worse i think so when i was 17 i was date raped and that was much harder because i had made a choice to go out with someone i liked him i thought we were going to have a relationship i dressed you know To impress. And so what even though I said no, 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 and he didn't listen, afterwards, I didn't know what to call it. I didn't label it as anything until I was an adult. And then I realized, you know, after I did did a lot enough work on myself, because for so long, I'm like, what was that? I don't even know what that was. Was that rape? Was it date rape? Was it my fault? Did I ask for it? I mean, I went out with him. So I was certainly responsible. And I couldn't put a label on it until after I went through therapy. And after going through therapy, I felt empowered enough and now I feel empowered enough to tell anybody listening, it's okay to just call it the way it is, to be very clear about what happened and also to take responsibility. And when I say responsibility, please hear me clearly. I am not saying blame. I am saying giving yourself the ability to respond appropriately. In my mind, responsibility means the ability to respond, not taking blame. And what that means for me is I was finally able to draw the line and be clear. He had no right to do that, no matter what. And I can be responsible in the sense that I can't go backwards, but I can go forward. That won't happen again.
2: This is incredible. My follow-up question was when you are older, even though it's still young, but when you are older and how confusing it can be, you know, girls in their late teens maybe even early twenties, if they're being taken advantage of. And like you just said, it can be so much more confusing because you do feel like you had, you know, perhaps that you had choice in the matter, you know, like you went on that date, you know, and you like dressed up and it can be so, so confusing. So that was, yeah, really incredible. Could you talk a little bit about your own feelings of your own sexuality? Cause you, you talk in the book, a lot about your experiences with that and on the one hand you i guess were well endowed at an early age and experienced a lot of backlash from peers because of that and then you had experiences with Playboy what has been your whole experience with how you perceive or interpret or embrace your own sexuality especially when it comes to all these issues that we just talked about with the dynamics of just everything
0: Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's hard to imagine that I was just prime for a code red identity crisis. (laughs) So I did develop very early by the time I was 14, I was a double D bra. And you know, back then we didn't have social media. You didn't see a lot of other people like you and you didn't see girls enhancing their photos. So that was like, if you looked like that and you looked a lot older than you were, even my face, I just looked older than I was. You got attention and it wasn't just attention from boys. I mean, boys acted like idiots, you know, like, they can't help it, like adolescent boys say things and whatever, and I got a nickname Jugs at school. That just happens. I think that's more expected, but when you start getting attention like that from men at an early age, that's really confusing. So and my dad, my my second stepdad at home started calling me sexy bitch when I was fourteen. And so he actually meant it as a compliment. That's what's really twisted about the whole thing. He never put a hand on me. He thought it was funny. He thought he was like complimenting me but I hated it. And so I thought it was so inappropriate and I hated it. My mom didn't do anything about it. And so she was always busy working and she just, she thought she would ask me, did he, did he try to touch you? When I would tell her that I didn't like it, it's like, well, did he do anything to touch you? And I'm like, no. And she's like, okay, well, you know, he's protecting you. And in some ways he did protect me. So it became very confusing. And I started to hate the attention that I got because I was just so young. And I would go out at times with no makeup and a big sweatshirt. And if I did that, all of a sudden I would get no attention or even worse, people would ask me if I was okay. So I began to think that I started thinking that this is what's expected of me. And why I cared what was expected of me is, you know, it's just because I was so young. I thought, well, people expect me to look a certain way. And so I have to do that. And if I didn't get the attention, it's like I I started to crave the attention I hated. And that really sort of did a number on me. And so yeah, then, you know, fast forward several years, I think it was less than a month before I found out that I had cancer. I was also told that I was, I had tested for Playboy. There's the whole story in the book, which I don't have time to go into in this interview, but I had tested for Playboy and was accepted and they were going to schedule a date for me. And I was just told that I was accepted and they were going to schedule a date. And then I found out I had cancer. And I mean, talk about a weird, crazy roller coaster of a ride. It's like, I'm told on one hand, like, oh, at that time, that was considered like, these are the most beautiful women. And on the other hand, you're rotting with cancer. And I was like, what well, I, I couldn't even digest it. It was just so crazy. But I, I really did become very confused about needing the thing I hated. And I started to resent men and the quote unquote games they played. And so I started to think that I needed to be better at their games than they were. So rather than being hurt by men, I needed to be better at their games than they were. And to be quite honest with you, I was pretty good at it. So not that that's a good thing, but I was, I started to, you know, become the thing I hated.
2: I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light that said we evolved a natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time. That's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light, and I had no idea. And you can get ten percent off at melanieavaloncom shine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E Hi friends, I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair, and it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels, and I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD, and historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier. I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. anti-aging help with your stress help with lack of sleep and or optimize your partying you need these patches friends and I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off which is incredible so to get that discount just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer that's i-o-n-l-a-y-e-r and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com/ionlayer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with 6 patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels and I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com/ionlayer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits the longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, Low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine, and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing, and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash melanieavalon. And use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfromwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. So what do you think is a healthy relationship with one's evaluation of their own appearance? That's something I personally struggled with because I was raised in a very Christian upbringing. And I've always had this struggle about like how to feel confident about yourself and your looks without feeling like it's something that is egotistical or selfish or, you know, the foundation of your identity, it kind of also ties into your warrior mentality. That's something that I also struggled with because I think I identified a warrior mentality as being like, I only looked at the negative traits of it, like that it's being, you know, too forceful and it's being too assertive and not being humble. So what are your thoughts on both of those? So being confident in oneself and being a warrior without feeling like, I don't know, I I really struggle with like the humility aspect of it all and taking back my strength. So, you know,
0: I think it's a journey. Byron Katie's work really helped me a lot. She did, she does this work, you know, it's called The Work. It's really about questioning your thoughts and turning your thoughts around. And, And I went to this one event of hers and she asked the women in the audience, what they hated about their bodies. And oh boy, did that just unleash just this whole crazy tirade of women just going off on their bodies. And, but the craziest part of all of it was that everyone had the same thoughts, literally almost identical thoughts, whether they were overweight, older, young, in shape, out of shape, it didn't matter. They almost all had the same thoughts, the exact same things about their bodies that they hated. The thin women hated their bodies more than the overweight women. And that was really eye-opening for me because I realized it's really not about our bodies. It's about our thoughts. So for me, a big part of it was unwinding the trauma and unwinding why I started to feel the way I started feeling about myself. Doing EMDR was really critical for me because you know, we develop those, those ideals. We develop coping strategies when we're young as a survival mechanism, as a way to get through. And they work when you're two years old, when you're four years old, when you're 10 years old. Whatever it is, or 15 years old, you develop these strategies as a way to survive. That strategy worked for me at the time because I didn't, it was the best I could do, right? It was the best thing in my toolbox at the time. And it helped me survive. The problem is, those strategies don't work when you're 40. They might have helped me survive, but they don't lend themselves to healthy relationships or, like you asked earlier, healthy sexuality. So by doing EMDR, I was able to not only go back and figure out why, how, those came about, like unwind the trauma, reprocess the trauma and see it through an adult's eyes, but then also replace those strategies with healthier ones, with what I wanted to have now.
2: I was really excited to read that you've done EMDR because I've done that as well. And it's been a really profound and powerful experience. Another topic that you discuss in the book, one of the ways that you dealt with the craziness in your life and trying to feel in control was you didn't have an eating disorder. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how many women do you think experience that? Does it require checking off certain boxes, like the difference between an eating disorder and disordered eating? What are your thoughts on eating disorders?
0: So I think the preferred expression is disordered eating, but you know, I, they're sort of interchangeable for a lot of people. So I I think clinically speaking, the current preference or the politically correct way to say it is disordered eating. Whatever you call it, when we have an unhealthy way that we manage either food or even our body image, they can sort of become connected. So just like at Amen Clinics, we say that depression isn't one thing or anxiety isn't one thing. I'm going to go out on a limb here with the research I've done and say that eating disorders aren't one thing. Because I know I've talked to a lot of people with eating disorders and they don't all experience them the same way. So for me, when I experienced an eating disorder, I just one day I found it was shortly after the date rape. I had a series of like events that happened in my adolescence. They stacked really fast and everything felt out of control. And I remember having the thought that maybe I'm just not as smart as other girls. Drama doesn't follow them the way it follows me. And everything felt so out of control. And one day I just found myself over a toilet bowl purging. And I, I was like, what am I doing? Like, this is so gross. I can't stand myself right now, but I felt relief. And so that became my way to try to control things. But when my mother took me to an eating disorders clinic at UCLA, I really, really, really hated it. I mean, like I really hated it and I didn't want to be labeled like that. I thought they were going to help me with my anxiety. Instead, I felt like I was being labeled. I just despised it. Some girl went into, she coded while I was there and then she died. I remember hearing everybody running around screaming and I'm like, okay, I'm never coming back here. So I refused to go back and I promised my mom I wouldn't purge again, which I sort of kept that promise. I didn't throw up, but what I did instead was I turned to extreme exercise, like two and a half hours a day minimum. So I didn't use exercise in a healthy way, but I figured that was better than, than throwing up. I wasn't going to die from it. I was beating my body up, but I wasn't going to die from it. Nobody was going to criticize me for it. If anything, it lended itself for towards my need for validation with my body. Right. So I looked better. So it's very complicated and confusing because there are a lot of ways to purge. You might be a binge eater. You might restrict eating. I mean, there's so many ways that people show disordered eating. And sometimes, you know, you don't even, it doesn't come out through eating, but your body dysmorphia might show up in other ways. You know, you don't see yourself the way other people see you. So that's a really complicated thing to answer as far as how do people, how do they experience eating disorders? It's really complicated. How many women have it? They say it's estimated that about one in three, but they don't really know because most don't, so many don't come forward, especially older women. They won't come forward.
2: How do you feel about, especially being in the field, some of the medications that are prescribed for different eating disorders, like for binging?
0: I'm not sure I have too much of an opinion on it because I don't really work too much with binge eaters. I know we would rather see what's going on in your brain. I mean, that's just our way of approaching things is what's happening in your brain, what's happening in your life. So we treat everybody by four circles, biological, what's going on with your body and your brain, Psychological, what's going on with your mindset? How are you thinking? Are you controlling your mind? Because your thoughts lie, they lie a lot. You got to talk back to them. Your social circle, what's going on with your social circle? Because people are contagious. And your spiritual circle, what gives your life meaning and purpose? And those are like four tires on a car. If one of those tires goes flat, the car might drive for a little while, but it's eventually going to crash. But if more than one of those tires goes flat, that car's not going to drive right? It it could even flip at some point, which is what happened to me. If all of those circles are low, if you're not taking the time to keep those circles full, your biology, your psychology, your social circle, your spiritual circle, that's when people begin to suffer. So for us, if somebody came in with an eating disorder, we actually have an eating disorder specialist who I love, and we've got a couple of them, but there's one in our Costa Mesa clinic who's amazing. They're really going to look at what's going on in every aspect of your life. They're not going to just prescribe something. Now, will they prescribe something? Possibly. It really depends on you and how severe the eating disorder is, whether or not they can do something holistically or not. And that's
2: really individual. Okay, gotcha. And actually, I'm dying to know your opinion on this because I am also the host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I was wondering, because intermittent fasting is becoming you know, more and more popular, time-restricted eating. Do you see though a lot of people potentially using intermittent fasting as a type of control? Like do you see unhealthy patterns with people with that? You know, I think anything to an extreme can become can become that.
0: I think if people are actually a lot of it has to do with your mindset, why are you doing it? Like if you're exercising for an hour a day because you know it's healthy for you, that's very different than doing two and a half hours a day because you need to get you need to sweat it out, which is what I used to do. So the same is true of intermittent fasting. If you are if you're fasting for days and you're a cop and you need to like be very, you know, you need to be very sharp on the job, that's not going to work too well for you. Or you're an athlete, that's not going to you're going to crash. So being aware of what you're doing and why are you doing it? But if you're intermittent fasting because you're doing 12 hours or 16 hours and maybe once in a while you do 24 hours, like, you know, once a week you do 24 hours when you're not doing something really important, that's fine, because the studies show that it's actually really healthy for your brain. It's healthy for your body, it's healthy for your brain. it's really good for you. The question is, what are you eating the rest of the time? <laughs> so are you restricting calories? Are you eating healthy food? are you you know are you trying to take care of your body or are you trying to punish your body
2: and then you touched on this. I love the the four spheres of the whole mind body approach to everything, and one thing you do talk about throughout the book is your spiritual journey. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and your, you know, your initial skepticism, but ultimately, you know, your role in the church and how does that function in your life today? It's a huge part
0: of my life. So I know that people listening right now, Melanie, are, are probably coming from all different walks. And so it's funny, I initially decided I was not going to put any of my personal spiritual beliefs in the book, but how do you write a memoir and not put that in there, right? If it's an important part of your journey, it's really hard to do. So it's not intended to preach at anybody. It's really just intended to show my journey, which was very rocky. My dad had abandoned me when I was a baby and he started doing drugs with my uncle who was a heroin addict and he left and then he showed up one day. So I didn't have a relationship with him. But he showed up one day with a new wife, a pretty new wife, and he was a Baptist minister. So that was really confusing. This is the guy trying to teach me about a savior in white robes and this, this dude named Jesus. And I'm like, that makes no sense because you're not even a part of my life. Why are you talking to me about this? Why can't you just show up and be present? Like, be here for me. And so I didn't really, I wasn't receptive to it, especially because my dad's behavior still wasn't all that great. I mean, he was better during that time, but he still wasn't really part of my life, you know, except for maybe a week or two a year and didn't pay child support. And then he embezzled money from the church. And then he started doing drugs with my younger half sister. So there was, it was really complicated, my relationship with him, but because he was the one trying to tell me or sell me on Christianity, I became very resentful. And I eventually crashed when I was 23 and I went into that wicked depression. And I realized I had no spiritual walk. Like I didn't even believe there was a God. If there was, I was praying he would just let me die. But eventually I got to this point where I was so low. I was just so completely bankrupt in every area of my life. And I and I just started thinking to myself, you know, I don't know if there's a God, but something big, it's going to take something big to pull me out of this hole. It is not going to be a person. There is not one person on the planet that can pull me out of the hole I'm in. And so I, I just didn't, I sort of inherently knew I needed to work on myself and they say when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And that's kind of what happened. I had, I had several mentors that sort of appeared in my life when I was ready to turn things around. When I went off the Prozac, I had a woman who appeared that really helped me with my spiritual journey. And my uncle, who used to be a heroin addict, now had turned his life around. He's the one that really taught me about the word responsibility. And that was just an awesome full circle moment for me. But when my friend started talking to me about God, at first it was a little too much God talk for me. But she was so different than my dad rather than that hellfire and brimstone, you're going to hell if you don't do this. It was really always about love, acceptance, you know, this, this, a very different God than I had heard about growing up. And she was always so full of joy, like annoyingly. So I don't know if you've ever known people like that, but you're like, why are they always so happy? It just really bugs me. And so I just kind of knew I wanted that, but I really didn't know what it was. And I'm like, I don't know if I can do this God talk thing, but the big breakthrough for me was when I finally realized my dad's not God. He's a flawed human. And that epiphany for me was like, why am I expecting my dad to be God? All people are going to disappoint you at some point. And so I just sort of realized if I'm going to have any kind of spiritual walk, it needs to be my own spiritual walk. It needs to be independent of my dad. And that's when I started my own journey.
2: Yeah, that is so powerful. Everything that you experienced with your dad and you know the story of how he, he didn't come to your wedding and you struggled for so long with, you know, actually forgiving him was really, really powerful. Listeners, you've got to get this book. It's really, really eye-opening. So for listeners who, who get the book and read it, what is the message that you're trying to share regarding, you know, what is normal? Can people from any background, whatever they might be experiencing, what might they learn from, you know, reading your journey?
0: So I think when I wrote this, you know, the intention was to just give people hope because there's people who have been through a lot worse than I have. There are people who have been through something very similar as to what I've been through. And, and the bottom line is I just wanted to give people hope that there is hope. And you know, it's easy to call people bad. I ended up having this great moment with my dad before he died. The story is in the book about how I came back together with him. He died in my arms after me not having a relationship with him. And I was praying for him as he died. And it was great. We were able to let everything go and I realized God was calling me to help certain people in my life that I didn't want to. I argued with God. So the title of the book is, you know, The Relentless Courage of a Scared Child. But the subtitle is, and then how it, it created a reluctant healer. And so the reluctant part was because I constantly felt like I was being called back to help these family members who I felt justified in disconnecting from. And, and don't misunderstand me. Having boundaries is important. Even when I reconnected with my dad and my half sister, who was an addict. Who had addiction issues, I still had boundaries. I had established healthy boundaries in my life by then. But I felt like I was being called back to help them. And I realized that in the end, the help was for them, but the healing was for me. I almost robbed myself of that opportunity to heal if I hadn't helped them. By giving them help, I got to heal those wounded parts of me from when I was a child. And so that's one of the themes in the book is like knowing when to help, knowing when to draw your boundaries. It's easy to call people bad. It's harder to ask why. And really that we can all, we are not more beautiful in spite of our broken pieces. We are more beautiful because of them. Each one of those breaks has a story to tell.
2: I love that. It's so beautiful. And it's really wonderful because you do have the whole journey and the healing aspect for members of your family within the book. But then for readers of the book, you know, it extends beyond that to people who read, because I'm sure when we read it, because you went through a lot and as a reader for, at least for me personally, and I talked about this interview, pieces of it so intensely resonated with me, even though I hadn't experienced, you know, most at all of what you have experienced reading it, you can find the pieces that do resonate with you. And then that, that overall message is so inspiring and really, really eye opening. So I I really, really, I thank you so much for this book. I so appreciate it. So this is actually perfect. The last question that I actually ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I've realized more and more each day how important mindset is surrounding everything. So what is something that you're grateful for?
0: I'm so grateful for my family. That's the thing I wake up every day. It doesn't really matter what else is going on if my family is, is here with me.
2: I love that. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we come to a close?
0: No, I'm just so grateful that you read the book. You know, if anybody wants to pre-order it, it's at relentlesscourage.com, and we've got all kinds of gifts. But other than that, I'm just really grateful that you enjoyed it.
2: All of the work of you, of Daniel, everything you're doing is so incredible. I am I am forever in gratitude. So any new books or any developments in the horizon, I love to bring either of you back on the show and, and share it with listeners. And for listeners, if you go to the show notes, I will put links to everything that we discussed. So definitely get the book. It's really, really, really a wonderful piece of work. So thank you so much, Tana. I really, really appreciate it.
1: Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast.